and I was happy to turn it on here this December morning. I was sweating all week at the conference, so here I am complaining about a time of blessing. Shame on the preacher. Um, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Romans again this morning, Romans chapter 2. <clears throat> Thought we would continue on in our studies. We will, I'm sure, at least on Christmas, which is on the Lord's Day this year, turn our thoughts more to a seasonal theme. But I want to read together from Romans 2, from verse 1 down to the end of verse 16. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest dost the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and dost the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of His goodness and forbearance and longsuffering? not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. Well, Linda, reading in verse 16, and again we trust the Lord's blessing to be on the public reading of His inspired Word. And I will ask you again, as is our practice, to bow your heads and hearts together with me before we come to consider the Lord's Word together. Heavenly Father, we've sung of a Son, begotten of the Father's love ere the worlds came into being. Lord, we confess that as we look through Your Word and we see the way in which You've revealed Yourself, the glorious doctrine of one God in three persons, the Blessed Trinity, Lord, that it is that which is beyond our comprehension. But thankfully, we might know of it because You've revealed it. And who of us would 
would want a God that we could comprehend. That we could fully figure out. We're thankful to have a God that's infinite. And though He can be known, has revealed Himself to His creation, is totally different, completely above and other than anything that is created. So we worship today, Father, Son, and Spirit. We come on a day of resurrection and know that the One who was eternally begotten, yet was was made flesh and dwelt among us. He came for the purpose of meriting righteousness for us and of paying the penalty of our unrighteousnesses. And when this glorious work was finished, He rose from the dead, ascended to Your right hand, and there we are seated together with Him today in heavenly places. Don't let these be just truths that we check off and affirm that we're not caught up with. But we are seated together today with Christ at the right hand of God. Or overwhelm us today with the Gospel. Give us of Your Spirit today to meditate on the Gospel and grant help in preaching Your Word and hearing and applying Your Word. May there be Gospel in what we consider today. We pray it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As we continue our study in the book of Romans, we have obviously entered into chapter 2. And our last season together sought in many ways just to introduce the chapter itself. And today as we enter in, if I could just remind us in some ways, the argument of Romans chapter 2 is simple enough. The common outline that we see everywhere and just find on the surface as we read is, looking at once the theme and all the introductory material is given, that revelation of the wrath of God, the rest of chapter 1 is taken up and just putting on display the ungodliness and the condemnation of the Gentiles. We turn the page to chapter 2, and we have Paul working through there the second part of his argument, the ungodliness and the condemnation of the Jews. And so again, the the main argument is common enough and, and simple enough for us to grasp. But I think in some ways Romans 2 is like the book of Hebrews. The main theme is quite simple, but some of the incidental statements along the way are deep indeed. And so it is with Romans chapter 2. The fact of the Gentiles and the Jews equally standing condemned before God are the the chief elements of the conclusion that will reach in chapter 3 that all the world is guilty before God. But as we come to look at this chapter in some detail, we will find that we'll have to pause and take some time in looking at some of the statements. How do we reconcile statements here with, well, a gospel of grace, if you will, because there's a statement, as we'll see in a moment, of of God rendering to men according to their deeds. Sounds something like works and not grace. Well, I trust the Lord will help us at a later date to deal with those things. But if you look at chapter 2, 
As you begin to work through and look at the particulars and in the opening verses that we've read, you'll see, and I tried to punch just a little bit along the way in the reading, that there's a recurring theme. The judgment of God is put before the Jews, it's put before us, but there's a judgment of God that is put before us with various standards of judgment. Now these are relevant and they apply to all men. But these truths are particularly brought before the attention of the Jews as a means of convincing them that they are guilty before God. They would have had no problem saying amen to chapter 1. Yeah, the Gentiles pretty much describes them. They're ungodly, they're guilty. But this is where I think we need to pause and again underscore that that general theme of the condemnation of Gentiles in chapter 1 and the condemnation of Jews in chapter 2. Again, is simple and true enough. But I think the underlying reality is, as chapter 1 describes the whole of humanity guilty before God, chapter 2 comes to describe those that perhaps think of themselves as exempt from the condemnation that is described in chapter 1. They would come and think somehow that they are different than the people described there. And so I think what we will read and study in chapter 2, again, while in Paul's day and for Paul's immediate readers, it is to the Jews that they most aptly apply. And they are indeed named in the application and the searching condemnation that it puts on display. How many are there among us? How many in what used to be called Christian nations? How many that have been born and raised with Christian heritage need to work through the same truth of Romans chapter 2? It's easy for us to think about the unchurched versus the churched. The unreached versus we who have the truth and possess and believe the truth. The Jews claim to be the people of God. Christian West, many in our nation, perhaps some in our midst, claim to be the people of God. The Romans or the Gentiles in Romans 1 were those that they knew the truth, they sought to suppress it, they rejected it, they pursued their sin, God gave them over to that reprobate mind, and they came and they, in following their sins, even gave sanction to others to do the sins that they were doing. Not so, chapter 2. Oh, we can't sanction that. These things are wrong. So when you turn the page from Romans 1 to chapter 2, you have people that are guilty of these sins and who yet say it's okay to do these sins. Chapter 2 begins the startling exposure of those who are still guilty of these sins. But they say it's not okay to do them. They condemn others, but they don't find any way to condemn themselves. I want to come 
and try and quickly give you a little outline, if you will, of these verses that we've read. I've said, and we will begin today to pursue this, that in chapter 2 we're looking at various standards of judgment that Paul puts before the Jews to think about. And if you work through, if you look in verse 2, you find that God's judgment's going to be according to truth. You come down to verse 5, and you find that God's judgment is going to be according to righteousness. If you read there, it says here, After thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Then we come to the next verse, and this is one of those we'll have to pause and tarry on a little bit. Who will render to every man according to his deeds. There's a sense in which God's judgment is according to deeds. And then we come to verses 11 to 15. And Paul speaks about Gentiles who have not the law being a law unto themselves and so forth. Paul's going to also show a standard of judgment that we could describe as judgment according to light. Some people had more light than others. And there's going to be judgment according to that light. And then you come to the end of verse 16. You have a fifth of these standards of judgment. We read there in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So these five standards of judgment, truth, righteousness, deeds, light, gospel, let's say clearly we'll need to take some time to flesh out some of these. But the first of these are in some ways clear enough. Judgment according to truth and judgment according to righteousness. I say clear enough because these are aspects of the truth that we have continually sought to emphasize here. I mean, notably what we began to unfold last week, the spiritual nature of the law of God. Well, that's all wrapped up in judgment according to truth. Judgment according to reality. And then judgment according to righteousness. Well, again, what, what a standard. Standard itself, I mean, it's a giant theme, it's a giant word in the book of Romans that has everything to do with understanding the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which is, of course, the theme of this book. And so I want today to just look at these two first two standards of judgment. And as we do these, I say again, if we look at chapter 1 and see clearly that the Gentiles have revelation shining to them, the point then for these unreached peoples is that there's a great body of truth which they reject. It's shining to them. They seek to suppress it. Their conscience fights them along the way. And God judicially times, and we see these cycles even in history, gives them over to abandon Him and to embrace that rejection of truth. But when we turn to chapter 2, the issue here is not the people or that group of people who possess that measure of truth that they are rejecting. Here's a group of people that possess not only that measure of truth, 
that light shining that the Gentiles cannot ignore, here are people that have more. Not just those details of even His eternal power and Godhead so that they're without excuse. The fact of God's existence, the fact of Him being Creator, us being the creature, the fact of us being accountable to Him, the fact of us being guilty before Him, that light indeed shows them their condemnation. But again, chapter 1 is people that have that light shining and they reject it. Chapter 2 comes to deal with the people whose sin and whose condemnation has in some ways become more subtle. They would not be so bold as to openly say they reject God and they reject God's law. Chapter 2 comes to deal with the people that redefine God's law. That want to redefine God's truth. That want to redefine, if you will, who is and who isn't condemned. The Jews felt themselves out from under condemnation. They felt themselves to be God's people in contrast to the sinful people. And the sobering news and the staggering statements of Romans 2 is that these people are guilty before God too. These people stand in need of this power of God unto salvation too. And so I want to come and look, as I said today, at these first two standards of judgment. Judgment according to truth. Judgment according to truth. As I said in general, if we can describe chapter 1 as those who reject God's law, these are in a sense the irreligious, though they do still worship, remember? They worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. They pass into idolatry. And idolatry always leads to immorality. But chapter 2 is the people that say they're not rejecters of God, that say they're not rejecters of truth. And yet the Lord brings the light of truth to them. That His judgment is going to be according to truth. Not according to their perceptions. Not according to their redefinitions. And if you look at this being defended really from verse 17 where we stopped our reading and down to the end of the chapter, the point is clearly driven home. When you come to consider then judgment according to truth, you can see that this doctrine, this truth underneath what we began to unfold a little bit even last week, is clear everywhere in Scripture. Most notably, as we began to describe at least in Matthew chapter 5, those opening words really after the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, what is Christ doing? In presenting Himself as Israel's Messiah, in coming and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, 
In those Beatitudes, he's given that biography of a Christian. And it it doesn't go through, blessed are the self-righteous, blessed are the ones that don't need salvation, blessed are the ones that are different than the Gentiles. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are they that are poor in spirit. There's the opening blow. Spiritual bankruptcy. And then mourning conviction of sin based upon understanding that reality of depravity and need. But I say once that biography of the Christian is unfolded, the Lord begins to bring it home. And how does He do that in that series of contrasts in Matthew 5? He uses a formula. You have heard. But I say, And what he does is he puts before them some of the redefinitions of the law that the Jews were guilty of. You've heard it said, you shall not kill. But I say unto you, if you're angry at your brother without cause, you're guilty. You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, Lust makes you an adulterer. And what Christ does there, and this is why I was, as a teenager, my head bouncing around as I was hearing the preaching of the Schofield Reference Bible and the Dispensationalists, and this is millennial truth, and it doesn't have anything to do with us. And as Charles Ryrie would say, even trying to defend the first generation of the Dispensationalists, Where, by the way, can anyone find a statement of the Gospel in the sermon after all? Is his understanding of the Gospel that deficient, that shallow, that he can't find the Gospel in the Beatitudes? That he can't find the Gospel in the contrast of of Matthew 5? In putting before people the spiritual nature of God's law so that they might understand the reality and the depth of their own need even if they were a good Jew. That's gospel. That's necessary truth. But lest we think that's the only place. I won't have you turn there, but Deuteronomy chapter 10. This is the books of Moses. This is the the sermon. That book of Deuteronomy, there's different sermons you might say, but in a sense the whole is the sermon that Moses preaches to the people before they go into the promised land. If you'd expect law, Jewish privilege to be anywhere in the Bible, it might be in the Pentateuch. But what does he say to them? He speaks to them, these that have received the ritual that covenant community defining ritual of circumcision, take away the foreskin of your hearts. That's preached to Israel then. And you find it in the prophets. Jeremiah powerfully drives it home and elsewhere, and that's just under the little lens of circumcision. The spiritual nature of God's law. That it's not about outward ceremonies. 
It's not about conforming to this or that. It's not about being different outwardly than the Gentiles. God's judgment is according to truth. And the truth is, being a physical descendant of Abraham is not enough to save your soul. Here this word is brought to those that were seeking to redefine truth. Redefine God's law. God's judgment will be according to truth against them which commit such things. You rightly condemn the Gentiles and you stand and say your amen to what you've just heard in Romans chapter 1. But do you not do the same things? He's going to rapid fire go through several parts of the law. So you condemn others for breaking the law, but do you break the same law? Of course you do. God's judgment is according to truth. And I say it's everywhere in the Scripture and it speaks and flows out of that basic truth of the spiritual nature of the moral law of God. So I want to tarry for a moment as we consider judgment according to truth and just think a little more about what this judgment according to truth is not. If it is based then upon the true spirituality of the law of God, if it touches my thoughts, the inclinations of my heart, as well as the deeds of the Gentiles, then what is this judgment according to truth not? It's not a judgment according to appearance. It's not a judgment according to appearance. If you take the people described in Romans chapter 1, while it is true of all men everywhere in all ages, the outward presentation and sanctioning of such things hasn't reached its pinnacle at every point in history. Those cycles we have seen, and again, very sadly, and very soberingly, the bottom of such a cycle describes the age in which we are living right now. But I say, by appearance, the Jews were very different. They weren't sanctioning the type of perverted lifestyle that is described in the closing verses of Romans 1. Oh, it's the Gentiles who do such things and they take pleasure, they sanction and encourage others to do the same. That wasn't the Jew. They didn't live that way. And so in appearance, they were different. I was thinking and just pondering these opening verses about Paul's own experience as he journeyed through the Gentile nations. What did he do when he went to the various cities? He even describes it to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. He went to the synagogues. It wasn't necessarily 
because the Jews deserved his preaching more than the Gentiles, but there was a reference point. And it's interesting when you look through Acts, the times where Paul went to a city where there was a synagogue and had a point of reference, had a door through which to enter and preach Christ, the reading of the Old Testament, namely. Some cities he went to, there wasn't a synagogue. And that's where you find the Lord may allow him to perform a work of healing, such as on the island of Melita that we read this morning, to open a door for that introduction of apostolic teaching of the gospel. But in those synagogues, which were the gatherings of the Jews of the dispersion, as they had been dispersed during these centuries now, of Gentile domination and the times of the Gentiles in which we still live, the Jews gathered in these synagogues, and interestingly enough, there were Gentiles that came to the synagogues. There were proselytes among the Gentiles. And these were people that looked at their own countrymen, they looked at their own lives, they saw the ruin in their culture that was resulting from this open sinfulness and sanctioning of sin, and the Jews appeared to be different. They don't sanction homosexuality. They don't sanction free love. They don't sanction... They've got standards. They live different kind of lives. If they're going to commit adultery, they do everything they can to hide it. Don't let it be known. And on down the list you could go. One of the things that Paul encountered as he went and preached in these synagogues is that often, it wasn't always the case, there were some among the Jews that believed. But often, what transpired was the Gentiles that had been interested in observing the morality of the Jews in contrast to the rampant immorality of their own culture. They heard the Gospel. The Spirit of God opened their hearts and they were converted. They didn't have an obstacle to overcome that some of the Jewish hearers had. They didn't have any self-righteousness to be humble. And they heard a message of grace and they said amen. It was the Jews who refused the message of grace that were moved with envy. I mean, they were kind of enjoying Gentiles visiting the synagogues and looking at them as different. And Paul's preaching of grace just kind of torpedoed that self-righteous view of themselves. You see what the Gospel exposes. What judgment according to truth exposes is that God's judgment isn't based on appearance. We can be deceived by appearances. There's a giant text in Samuel with reference to Saul and David. Saul, the man that was head and shoulders taller than the other men in the kingdom. Saul who had everything 
from the external appearance. You'd want in your king. And here's David, this shepherd. He's not even firstborn. I mean, he's way down. He's the run of the litter. And we have that text. Those that were observing as God sends Samuel to look at the sons of Jesse. <laughs> no, it's not this one. Not this one. God doesn't look at the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. Well, so it is. God's judgment according to truth is a judgment that's not according to appearance. We can do a lot to appear different than the vile sinners of our culture. But that's not what God will deal with us according to the day of judgment. His judgment's according to truth. This judgment according to truth is not judgment according to relative comparison. There may be some among the Jews, there may be some among us who will say, well, yes, you got a point. We're all sinful. Everybody's done bad stuff. Okay, I have sin, but not that kind of sin. You see what we dealt with a little bit last week. That tendency among the self-righteous to point a finger at the sin of others. They even admit some imperfections on our part, but I'm not like them. Of course, you can hear the echo of the Pharisees' prayer. The Lord asks His disciples to pay attention to Here's this publican who won as much as lift his face toward heaven and says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And the Pharisee that says, God, I thank you that I'm not as other men. Not even as this publican here. God's judgment is not according to relative comparison. How many times will your flesh tell you, perhaps even in battle with the Spirit of God convicting you of sin and say, you're not as bad as him. You're not as bad as the other guy. God's judgment is according to truth. It's not according to relative comparison. And another thing that God's judgment according to truth is not. It's not judgment according to ecclesiastical conformity. Among the many things the Jews could lift in contrasting themselves with the Gentiles of chapter 1 is their churchiness. Look at what we've got. point in which Romans was wrote, they actually still had the temple and the providence of God. That would be dealt with in just a very few years following. But you think of these Jews that they had their heritage. 
They had their circumcision. They had their festivals. They had their sacrificial system. And they could studiously follow all of those rituals. They could follow all even of those ceremonial purifications. And again, look at that as a difference between themselves and the ungodly, unchurched Romans, Gentiles, the opening chapter. Now we don't wrestle with that today. There are Jews of our day. There's not a temple. and Thus there's no ongoing sacrifice, though they seek to reestablish that. We often are reminded. Sometimes I think we're reminded more by the dispensationalists than by the Jews, but again I am tempted to digress. But yet what of Christianity? How much of this ecclesiastical conformity creeps into our thinking? Creeps into our understanding of how we relate to God? I go to church. Been baptized. I've been confirmed. I'm a member. I've signed a church covenant maybe as Some would do. I've even got a list of things I don't do. Those are unpopular today in a real way. And actually, I believe at least, segments of the church that have had such standards that have been imposed on God's people without an understanding of the gospel, without a preaching of justification by faith alone, without an understanding of imputed righteousness, can we dig even deeper, without an understanding of the active obedience of Christ, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, we'll read in those powerful climactic verses of chapter 5, so by one man's obedience shall many be made righteous. There have literally been generations of American Christians that have not been taught that truth. But they had a list of things that they did and didn't do that make them different than the world the same way the Jews were different than the Gentiles. And I just wonder how much this thought of God judging by ecclesiastical conformity creeps into our own thinking. I'm opening Pandora's boxes here and things that I would need a lot more time than I've already used uh, to flesh out. In some ways, I pity the rising generation as they try and navigate an ecclesiastical path 
Because there have been a couple generations of American and Western Christians that have abandoned the doctrines of grace, that haven't had imputed righteousness held before them. They haven't understood the nature of saving faith. Faith in the last hundred years almost in our country has been preached among Protestants as a work. There's merit in my act of believing. Let me just put for you people young and old. Remember when I came under the preaching of the doctrines of grace and the times the word merit came up in that preaching. I wasn't used to that. Where is their saving merit? Rome speaks of meritorious works. Protestants hadn't used the terms, but faith became a meritorious work. And a lot of American Bible-believing Christianity And generations were frustrated because they didn't understand imputed righteousness. They didn't understand the saving merit of Christ. And they came to see how this outward ecclesiastical conformity, this living by outward rules, could save their souls. That's a right conclusion. But you don't get saved by figuring out the errors of the church. You get saved by understanding the truth and believing the truth. I wonder how many been in my little to be preached file I have several of those I have to find a couple of them every now and then one of my phone usually stays with me I'm just thinking about a message at some point about having a theological focus in life rather than an ecclesiastical focus I believe it is incumbent upon us to seek and find a church that believes the truth, that preaches the truth. There's no such thing as a perfect church. If you want illustrations of that, I'm old enough, I have experience in and knowledge about enough branches of the Christian church that I can give you some information. There's no such thing as a perfect church. But we want one. And the reason we want one is because it's easy. If I can just say I belong to the right church, I can feel comfortable if I don't understand that God's judgment is according to truth. You're not going to be judged by what church you're a member of. If you even take the pains to be a member of anything, which a lot of American Christians have decided doesn't matter. 
Another sermon in the To Be Preached file on the Americanization of the church. Capitalism applied to religion of all things. Marketing applied to religion of all things. But I wonder, and you can look at levels of this, you can look at levels of this that are significant enough that it, it's dealing with saved versus lost. And you can look at levels of this that are true even in the lives of real believers. Where there's a, a backslidden state and there's either a desire or a surrender to the world that surrounds us. And we can think, well, you know, I'm going to find a church that fits my definition of Christianity. Or I'm going to find a church or a people that I feel comfortable around living on this level. I believe there are people, that's why I say I, in some ways I pity this generation. Because there are a lot of churches, Bible-believing churches, where this formal, self-righteous, external standard-oriented version of Christianity prevails. And all that follows that is guilt and self-righteousness. If you feel like you got the boxes checked, you feel good about yourself. And then you even feel good enough to start pointing fingers at the people that don't have your boxes checked. And it's wicked. But the flesh takes that reality, that correct diagnosis, and says, I get to, since it's just all inward, I can decide what goes and what doesn't. I can come out from under the guilt of those churches. And I can just find a church or a group that doesn't make me feel guilty. The gospel shouldn't make believers feel guilty. It should make them feel relieved and grateful that their sins are forgiven. And also eager for more conformity to Christ whose life was one perfect fulfilling of the spiritual, real law of God. That standard is a little higher than your strict church. It's different than a self-righteous church, but it's higher. I always want to challenge somebody when they talk about legalism in a church. If they really understand what legalism is and what antinomianism is. To say, you're not going to stand before the hypocritical, self-righteous, pharisaical Christian that you're reacting against on the day of judgment. You're going to stand before Jesus. He lived in perfect conformity to God's law. Was he a legalist? Was he something you need to get away from? Or is he someone you need to follow with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength? What was wrong with the Jews? 
I said I was going to preach the first two of these five. I've just not even finished the one. What was the Jew's standard? In many ways, the standard was himself. He could comfort himself and say, judgment's going to be according to appearance. I certainly look different than the Gentiles. Maybe the judgment will be according to relative comparison. Even you put it out on paper, I am different than the Gentiles. I don't have that kind of sin. Maybe they thought judgment would be according to ecclesiastical conformity. I've gone through all the hoops. I belong to the right church. My church is as good or better than your church. God's judgment isn't according to those things. It's according to truth. He'll judge the self-righteous. He'll judge the Pharisee in the same way as he'll judge the unchurched Gentile. But our Phariseeism, our self-righteousness, our pursuit of externals just change them a little bit can be very subtle. God's not going to judge us based on finding other Christians that we feel more comfortable around. He's going to judge us according to truth. And that's why we all have to flee from ourselves unto Christ. It doesn't matter if we're churched or unchurched. We have to abandon hope in self. We have to abandon hope in church. We have to abandon hope Appearances. We have to abandon hope in being just different, better than that guy. We have to flee to Jesus. I trust the Lord will grant us grace today. There are many applications of judgment according to truth. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we ask You today, give us grace, give us wisdom and understanding Your Word. By Your Spirit, fight every fleshly inclination to rest some measure of hope in our performance. No matter how strict or how loosely sincere we flee to Christ. View us in Him and Him alone. We pray these things in His worthy name. Amen.